Open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel, and we'll start our study in 2 Samuel tonight. Chapter 1, verse 1. This summer, we're going to be doing a verse-by-verse study in 2 Samuel, and um, I know it's going to be a tremendous blessing. While you are turning there, just a couple quick announcements. I want to remind you, uh, Jerry and Sandy Sanders has their Koinia um, Fellowship that is this Saturday, and it starts at 6 o'clock. Am I right on that, guys? Check your bulletins, 6 o'clock, all right, potluck dinner, so um, that's a great time, they're mapped to their home at the information desk, address there in the bulletin, so have a great time guys this Saturday. Also, Pregnancy Resource Center, the baby bottles, some of you are bringing them back, and uh, so you can put them in that basket or on that table out there in the foyer area. Also, I want to remind you, Sunday, uh, it's 8.30, 10.30, we'll be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13 which is a very interesting portion of Scripture because it's the Olivet Discourse. This is where Jesus gives a private briefing to some of his disciples about the end times as um, they ask him about uh, the signs of the end time. And so we're going to be going through that portion of Scripture. So uh, you will probably find it to be very fascinating, very relevant for today as Jesus says, watch, be watching for the Master's return. And so we're going to be in Matthew or Mark chapter 13 uh, this Sunday, 8.30 and 10.30 services. Uh, also want to remind you that we are having a baptism on the 26th, so if you'd like to be baptized, let us know. And also following the baptism, that's at 6 o'clock over here at Centennial Pool. And um, you can um, come and be baptized. And, uh, and then afterwards, there will be a swim time till 8 o'clock. So baptism and swim time on the 26th at Centennial Pool over here off Reservoir Road. Uh, Everything else is there in your bulletin, so take a look at it. Also, I just want to remind you as well, um, first of all, if you're visiting with us, we have visitors packets that are available there in the hallways. You go out those double doors, and uh, you can pick one of those things up, and uh, you can know more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel or look at our webpage, ccgreeley.com. Also, just... Uh, while I'm mentioning it, I know it's summertime, so a lot of people are traveling and, and on vacation and taking weekends. But if you're in the nearby area, you can still pick us up on the radio, okay? So if you're up at the Red Feathers area, you can listen to Grace FM, okay? It gets up there. Matter of fact, how many of you guys have fished over at Hunholtz? It's way in the sticks. I know, J.D., you've been there. <laughs> I saw you there Monday. (laughs) It's way up in the hills, and we could pick up Grace FM. So where it is is if you were to go way to the top of Cameron Pass and then go north up Laramie Valley up to the Wyoming border, you could pick up Grace FM. Or you go up to Laramie and then go south about uh, 40 miles south and west as you're going to Walden. It's just on the Colorado side. We could pick up Grace FM very clear, and I thought, I could just spend the summer up here, you know? I got the radio program, and, and so anyway, I just wanted to pass that along. It's, I know it's a time where people get up. Uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, you, in this side of uh, the mountains, you can pick it up all along the Front Range, and so be sure to tune in and be blessed as you're up in the mountains and uh, getting away and being refreshed and renewed. You have opportunity to listen to God's Word. So also, I just want to prayer request uh, that I have. Dr. Song, who we have worked with in helping um, send supplies to hospital in Cambodia uh, that he goes and he works at, and then also in China, and it's a hospital that treats uh, patients with leprosy, and uh, he is there now. He left uh, Monday, and a team, uh, a small team that went with him, another doctor here in Greeley, Dr. Sandiford, and Uh, his children. So they are there in China working at this hospital that we've sent supplies to and medication to. So I just want to pray for them uh, as they're going to be there for the next couple weeks. And so, Father, we do ask that you would just bless them as they're um, in China and just arrived and a long trip. I pray that you would bless their work, and and I thank you for his commitment to the work that you've called him to do. And And Lord, just the medication that we've helped sort out and send there would be a blessing. And Lord, I pray you'd be with Dr. Sandiford and his uh, kids that are there as well. And Lord, as they serve and as they have opportunity 
to just uh, minister to those people the gospel of Jesus Christ in a country where it's not freely given. And Lord, I pray for their health. I pray for their protection. I pray you bring them back to us safely and there'd be a good report. And Lord, also as they talk to um, others about a ministry, Lord, I just pray that you would bless their hearts. And, and, um, and Lord, again, we just ask that um, you would just do a marvelous work in their midst. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The book of Second Samuel is a book that is going to talk about the reign of David. Now, just to give you a little bit of an Old Testament survey, because we've been out of our midweek study for the last couple of weeks because I was in Israel, and then last week we showed the slides to uh, Israel and gave you a report on our trip. But as you go through the Old Testament, hopefully this will help because I know that we've seen a lot of new people come into Calvary Chapel and you've never really gone through some people through the Old Testament. But we know that in about 2000 AD is when Abraham was called, um, or 2000 BC, Abraham was called by God to come into the land of Canaan and promise that he and his descendants would have that land, the land of Israel. And so the boundaries are given there to Abraham. And that promise would pass through Abraham, through Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons who were the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it would be the, at the end of Genesis, we see that it would be Joseph, one of uh, Jacob's sons, that would end up in Egypt. He became the prime minister. And Jacob's family would end up in Egypt, and they spent a totality of 400 years there, just as the Lord had told Abraham would take place. And so after time in Egypt, of course, they were under slavery and bondage for those 400 years. And then in the book of Exodus, we see that God raised up Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of that bondage. So Moses would come. He would uh, deliver the children of Israel uh, by the mighty hand of God who brought the plagues down upon Egypt. And they would come out to the wilderness, and we know they would come to Mount Sinai. And there in the book of Exodus, God would make a covenant with his people. And in that covenant, he told them, I'm going to give you my law. He gave them the Ten Commandments and the law of God there. He made a covenant saying that if you follow after me and, and keep my commandments and my word and my statutes, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you into the land of promise. I'm going to drive out those inhabitants, the Canaanites and the different tribes of the Canaanites that are there in that land. And I'm going to bless you and plant you there. And so there at Mount Sinai, as they received the law, they received that uh, covenant with God. Also, we saw that the instructions of the tabernacle in the priestly ministry was established. And that was very important because that would take about a year, a little over a year, for them to make all the furnishings and the priestly garments and the instructions of the priests were given. We see that in the book of Leviticus. And so finally, in the second year of their exodus, they're ready. They've received the law. God has made a covenant with them. They are spiritually ready. They have the tabernacle. The priestly ministry is there all in order ready to go. So God, in the second year of the Exodus, as we read the book of Numbers, would bring them up to the border of the promised land. And there they sent spies in, 12 spies from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They went in for 40 days. Those spies came back. They had large fruit. They were carrying two of them, large clusters of grapes on their shoulders. I think it was Caleb and Joshua that was doing that personally. We don't know for sure. The scripture doesn't say. But what happened was that 10 of those spies said, yes, the land is good. It's a wonderful land, but there's a problem, and that is there's Canaanites everywhere, and there's large cities with walls that reach up to the heavens, and there's giants in the land, and we're but grasshoppers in their sight, and they're going to gobble us up. But Joshua and Caleb said, so what? God has promised us the land. Let's go in and possess what God has given to us. But the people wouldn't go. And so Numbers chapters 13 and 14, we see because the people rebelled and it was a continual rebellion against God, God said that this generation is going to die out in the wilderness. You're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And so they kept taking laps around Mount Sinai. And finally, after 40 years, as you move into the book of Joshua, 
Moses died on Mount Nebo at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. We know that that new generation would go into the promised land. And the book of Joshua gives us the story how he would lead the children of Israel in their conquest of the land. They would drive out the inhabitants, defeat the Canaanites that were there. And it was Joshua, the book of Joshua, which was a book of victory because they lived and moved out in faith. They trusted God. But then something happened. At the end of the book of Joshua, we see that Joshua addressed the people. Joshua was trying to get them to complete the task of driving out those Canaanites because they didn't complete it at that time, at the end of Joshua's life. And Joshua also said that you need to put away your idols. He knew that the people were beginning to collect idols, and he said, you need to make a choice this day whom you're going to serve. As far as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And so it was Joshua that addressed the nation, and even though they responded by saying, yes, we will serve the Lord and only him, we move into the book of Judges. And Judges is a book of defeat because that generation after Joshua did not know the Lord nor remember the works of the Lord. And so they began to rebel, worship the Canaanite gods, and the days of the judges would last, according to Paul, as he was teaching the Jews there in Acts chapter 13, he said, for a period of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So the book of Judges, we see defeat. They find themselves in bondage. They would cry out to the Lord. They would put away their idols for a short time. The Lord would raise up a judge to deliver them. And that would continue that cycle for those 450 years until Samuel the prophet, who was there ministering at the tabernacle there in Shiloh as we opened up 1 Samuel, he would be the last of the judges. He was a godly man. He was a godly leader. He was the spiritual leader of the land. And it says that Samuel would go throughout Israel preaching the word of the Lord. And finally, there was repentance. And I'll tell you, what I see in Scripture is this. Whenever there is true revival that takes place, it's a result of the word of the Lord that is being spread, the word of the Lord that's being multiplied. We see that in 1 Samuel. We see that in the book of Acts. As revival began to spread amongst the Gentiles, it always says that the word of the Lord grew quickly. The word of the Lord multiplied, the word of God. And that's where revival happens. As the gospel is preached, as the word of the Lord, the word of God is being taught, then it quickens the hearts of men, and there's true repentance and a turning to the Lord. So that's where revival comes out of, and revival broke out in the land. They put away their idols, and then we see that after that, they, do, they would ask for a king. So now we're in close to 1000 BC, and as they asked for a king, Samuel was disappointed, but the Lord said to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me, because I wanted to be their king. And ever since I've brought them out of Egypt, they've rebelled against me. They've been stubborn. Uh, and they haven't really submitted to me fully. God had promised them that if you just allow me to really be your king and to lead you. He had set the nation up to where they had a good land. He would send the rains to bless them. That he would protect them from their enemies. They had all the civil regulations that were in place, the religious regulations that were there. And the other nations were to see how they were blessed, Israel, which means governed by God. And Israel was to be a light to them. But they came back and said, we want to be like the other nations. And I think that's a sad testimony of where God's people was at that time. And I hope for you and for me today in this church, Calvary Chapel, that we don't want to be like the world. I think a mistake can be, and it can happen very subtly to ministries and the churches, is they think, how can we look like the world and, and, and not be totally into the world? Or how can we be relevant like the world? I want to be a light is what I want to be to the world. And I pray that this church is. So they would ask for a king, and then that would begin the days of the king. Saul, as we saw, was anointed the first king of Israel as we've gone through 1 Samuel. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was one that came from a well-known family. Saul was uh, one who started out well. He seemed to be humble. He gave the glory to the Lord. He would um, save the, the city of Jabesh Gilead, and he gave glory to God. But then something happened. 
we saw that Saul began to turn inwardly and he focused on himself and he wanted to be seen of man and he wanted to be noticed before the people. And we know that he gave that unlawful sacrifice there in chapter 13. And Samuel came along and said, Saul, why are you doing this? Well, he didn't repent. And we know in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel that it was the Lord that told Saul that you are to kill all the Amalekites, destroy them for what they did to my people in the wilderness. And we discuss as we went through that chapter how the Amalekites were the ones that the children of Israel did battle with in the wilderness. And what the Amalekites did is they would sneak up on the rear ranks of the children of Israel and pick off the, the weak and the stragglers. They uh, would um, also, as we know from Samuel's response to Agai, king of the Amalekites, that they would, you know, pick off the women who were pregnant and kill them. They were just mean and terrible. And God said that I'm going to deal with the Amalekites. So Saul, this is what you're to do. You're to destroy all the Amalekites, all their sheep and oxen. And what Saul did was he went to battle and he had victory, but he didn't do what God called him to do. He would save, you know, Agai, king of the Amalekites. Obviously, some of the Amalekites would escape because they would populate enough to where they became a problem to David, as we saw as we finished 1 Samuel, as he, the Amalekites came up and burnt Ziglag and took David's family and all his 600 men that were with him as David and his men were away. And you remember the story as we went through there in, in chapter 30, how David went to war against the Amalekites. So Saul... He didn't do what the Lord told him to do. And he set up a monument for himself. He came back and he said, I perform all that the Lord commanded me. And Samuel the prophet met him and said, really? Then what's the bleeding of sheep in my ears? And, and why do I hear the lowing of oxen? And who is this, Agai, king of the Amalekites? And Saul, you have not performed what the Lord has told you to do. And the kingdom's going to be taken from you, Saul and given to another, a man after God's own heart. Of course, speaking of David. And Saul would say, I have sinned, but honor me now before the people. And see, what happened was Saul, he wanted to be seen before the people. He wanted to be noticed. He was one that all he really, you know, what was a priority for him is to look good before the people. And so the next chapter, chapter 16, David is anointed to king. Chapter 17, David has victory over Goliath. Remember? We know that story of, of, of David slewing Goliath, and, and David was only a teenager at that time. But it would be after that that David would be pursued by Saul as Saul became very jealous of David. At first, Saul loved David. At the end of chapter 16, we see that Saul loved David and made David his armor bearer. But then as David had God's anointing on him and God was working through him, Saul became very jealous of David bitter and angry towards him, wanting him dead, threw spears at David, and then relentlessly began to pursue David through the wilderness. And that took us through 1 Samuel, didn't it? And David was being pursued by Saul, listen, most scholars say for about 12 years. I mean, David, in the peak of his life, from the time he was about 18 years old to the time he's 30 years old, he was being pursued relentlessly by Saul. And Saul, because of his bitterness and because of his anger and because of his jealousy that grew, we see that Saul was out of control. He neglected his responsibility to the nation. And that's why the Philistines were able to grow strong. Instead of protecting the people from the enemies, he was going after God's anointed. And we see that Saul would do it to where he, he did it in a, in a way that um, he was out of control. He did it in a way to where he was making rash decisions. And Saul ended up dying at the end of his life, a very fearful man, a very bitter man, a very angry man. And you see, we learned some very important lessons as we went through 1 Samuel of what happens if bitterness or anger, malice, if those things are in your heart and you don't give it to the Lord. Saul spent a lot of energy pursuing David. And he missed out a lot in life. And the blessings that God had for him. All because he wanted to be seen. He was so self-focused because of the bitterness that grew in his heart. And it was like cancer that grew. What I pray for all of us that are here. That we wouldn't let those things control our lives that we would be ones that, Lord, help me with my attitude towards others. 
And you see, David was blessed. And sometimes we can look at it and say, you know what, why did David have to spend those years in the prime of his life? His family had to go to Moab on the other side of the Jordan River because they had to escape Bethlehem because Saul would kill them. We know that David was running in the desert, and it is desert there, hiding in caves. And we know that David uh, would say to Saul, I have no inheritance. Saul would take David's wife away. But David learned some very important lessons. And that is he learned that God was his refuge and his protector and strong tower and his safety. And as we went through 1 Samuel, we pointed out some of those beautiful psalms that David would write as he's pouring out his heart to the Lord. I want to encourage you tonight. Now maybe the last 12 hours or the last 12 days Maybe the last 12 months or even the last 12 years have been tough. You've been going through a trial yourself. But I want you to know that the Lord is with you and he still sees you. It's interesting, that number 12, because David running from Saul for 12 years, going through that difficult time, there was another individual that went through 12 years of difficulty, and that was Joseph back in the book of Genesis. Joseph, who was in prison, an Egyptian prison for 12 years. In my devotions this morning, I was reading about the woman there in Matthew's gospel with the issue of blood there in Capernaum that that said, I need to go and touch Jesus. I need to touch the hem of his garment. She had that issue of blood for 12 years. And you see, sometimes we think, Lord, it's been hour after hour or week after week or month after month or year after year. And I want you to know that the Lord sees you and it is in those times, listen, that you're either going to become more bitter like Saul or you're going to become better like David. And my prayer is is that you wouldn't become bitter. You wouldn't become bitter towards the Lord or towards people, that you wouldn't hold the grudges and the anger or the jealousies or any of those things, but you would give it to the Lord and learn and and continue to, to learn to trust in him. That, Lord, I know that you have something for me in my life and your promises are true for me. And that you would become better just as David because David did become better. And he didn't let those things just dominate his life. That is, David didn't have an attitude of vengeance and and bitterness towards Saul. But he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And we're going to see now as we open up the second book of Samuel that he would grieve for Saul. Now it came to pass, as we open up Second Samuel, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziglag. And on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. In verse 5, so David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. So we see here that this is the report of Saul's death given to David. David. Now, when we end at 1 Samuel in chapter 31, it gave the account of the death of Saul and Jonathan. As the Philistines came deep into Israel's territory, clear up to the northern part of the country, pursued Saul and Jonathan and the children of Israel, clear to Mount Gilboa, which is deep, deep into the country. And they killed Saul and, and were pursuing them. They wounded him, as, as what chapter 31 of 1 Samuel says. And Saul said to his armor bearer, you know, please kill me. I don't want to be given to the hands of these uncircumcised Philistines. They're going to torture me. So the armor bearer wouldn't do it. So what happened was, as we read the last chapter of 1 Samuel, that it would be Saul that fell on his sword and then his armor bearer would fall on his sword. 
it seems like the account, the report that's given to David, this Amalekite comes, it's three days, you know, after the battle, two days after David had returned from Ziglag, and it would be about a three-day walk for this Amalekite to go from Mount Gilboa clear to Ziglag. And he comes to David, and, you know, David there, he, he sees this man coming, and he asks him, you know, what's going on? And this man has you know, tattered clothes, dust on his head. He falls at David's feet. And I think David knows that this is not good news because this man is showing expression of mourning. And he says that I saw Saul there. He had fallen on a sword and he wasn't dead and he wanted me to, to finish him off. And I knew that he wasn't going to live, so I ended up killing him. Now, there seems to be a conflict or a little bit different account here of what we read in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. The difference could be this, that it could be that as Samuel or Saul, that is, fell on his sword on Mount Gilboa, that he wasn't quite dead and that the Amalekite ended up finishing him off. That could be just an additional information here in chapter 1 that is given. It's interesting that Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that this Amalekite did end up killing Saul. Or it could be that some scholars have suggested that it was this Amalekite that came to David and is lying to David. That he happened to stumble upon Saul's dead body and thought, hey, this is my chance to find favor with David. So I'll take his crown, I'll take his bracelet, and I'll come to David. But either way, he comes to David thinking probably that he's going to receive some kind of reward as he gives this report of the death of Saul. And so here is uh, this report given to David, verse 11, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now this amazes me. It really does. Because I can understand David mourning for Jonathan. We saw that he had a covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan and David were very close. Their souls were knitted together, as we read in 1 Samuel, uh, and they were ones that were good friends, and Jonathan was loyal to David. I can see where David is mourning for the men who were lost in the battle, the men of Israel, but mourning for Saul? That amazes me. And that's why I say in the difficult times, maybe when somebody's giving you a hard time or perhaps pursuing you in a negative way or a difficult way, or you're going through difficult circumstances in your life, David was one that, that he turned to the Lord and said, Lord, I'm going to let you deliver me from my enemies. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed is what he would say to his men when he had opportunity to kill Saul. God has put him in that position of king. I'm going to let the Lord take him out. And so David here, he begins to mourn for Saul, which tells me that David didn't let all of that just dominate his life. He had a heart that was for God and a heart that he desired to, to continue in the things of the Lord and drawing close to the Lord. And that's hard to do when you're going through trials or difficulties or somebody's coming down on you. But what I pray is, is that we would give it to the Lord and that we would be ones that we would trust in him and we would not allow our hearts to be full of malice and bitterness and jealousies or anger towards other people. That we would learn from David but there's more to learn from him. Not only did he mourn for Saul, but we see that in verse 11, so did all the men who were with him. It's amazing as well. And I see that these men, 600 men that were with David, the mighty man of David, that they're learning as well, and they're learning from their leader, David. You see, before they said, David, this is your chance to lop Saul's head off, and David would hide his guys down and say, no, that's not going to happen. But David's attitude and his heart is having an effect on his guys because David is a leader. And I'll tell you the truth on this. Parents, dads, moms, those of you who may lead in, in the workplace or you have a business, maybe that you are out in the community that you are you know, ministering or you're volunteering or those of you who lead in ministry, that the people that are looking to you, they're going to learn from you. And they're going to see the attitudes that you have. 
And my prayer is, is that we would have attitudes that are pleasing to God and our speech towards others would be pleasing to the Lord as well. You see, David, his men are learning from David. And they're mourning as well. But dad, if you come home and it's the dinner time and your kids are sitting around the table and you're saying the boss this and this coworker that and I can't stand them and, and you know, I, I'd love to lop their head off and I'm smarter and they're so stupid and all this negative stuff coming out, guess who's going to pick up on that and begin to learn to talk like that? It's going to be your children. And they learn from you in the example that you set. If you're a, 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 an employer, if you're a supervisor over people and you're negative and always down, the people that are working for you are going to pick up on that. If you're out ministering to others, ministering to teenagers or a small group, and you're being negative or putting others down, they're going to pick up on those things. So David and his men, they also are mourning for Saul and for Jonathan and the men of Israel. Because they're learning from a man who has a heart after God. You know, it's in Ephesians that Ephesians tells us that let all bitterness and wrath, Ephesians chapter 4, and anger and evil speaking be put away from you. And you be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. So David said to the young man in verse 13 who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. So David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So David executes this Amalekite. David refused to, to kill Saul when he had the opportunity. And this Amalekite could have tried to bring Saul's body back or comfort him, but he ended up killing him. And David rejects this Amalekite idea that he's going to get a reward or something. He says, how is it that you put your hand against the Lord's anointed? Your blood is on your own head. But isn't it ironic when you think about this, that here is Saul who was told in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you are to, the Lord said very clearly, very plainly, very specifically, you're to destroy all the Amalekites. And guess who does amen? and an Amalekite about 20 years later. We discuss how the Amalekites are a picture of the flesh. They're the ones that, as I mentioned to you before, sneaking up on the rear of the children of Israel in their wilderness wandering, picking off the weak and the feeble and the stragglers. You see, our flesh will rear up its ugly head, come against us, do battle against us, especially when we're feeling weak spiritually especially when we're kind of straggling behind where the Lord wants us to be, when, when, when we're not feeling strong. And you see, the Lord said, because of what the Amalekites did, that I'm going to bring judgment. And we know that the Amalekites being a picture of the flesh, that what we're to do is put to death all those fleshly things in our lives. But what can happen is that we can say, okay, Lord, I've put away a lot of these things, but I still got a few Amalekites around. Just as Saul brought back Agai, king of the Amalekites. I've destroyed, I've done all that the Lord has commanded except for Agai here. And sometimes Christians will come and they'll talk to me and they say, you know, I, I, I do pretty well, but I struggle in this one area. It's no big deal, is it? What my prayer is is that we wouldn't have any Amalekites. That we wouldn't have a little agai around. Well, I've put away most of the stuff. I don't struggle. But this one little thing, whatever it might be, because you know what will happen? Time will pass, and that Amalekite, that agai, will do you in. So we need to put to death all the members of the flesh, that is, all the fleshly tendencies in our lives, and give it to the Lord. Walk in the Spirit, as Paul would write in the book of Galatians, and you will not fulfill the desires of your flesh. That's the promise of the Lord. And I know that's hard, because the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But we have the Holy Spirit to give us the power that we can walk in all godliness that pertains to Christ Jesus. So give him all the Amalekites. Lord, help me to put to death all those things of the flesh, that they're not a part of my life, and help me to walk in the Spirit.
ironic that Saul killed by an Amalekite when he was told to destroy all the Amalekites. And so we see as we continue here, the song of the bow, then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasser. So the book of Jasser we don't have. It's thought to be a collection of songs and poetry to various war heroes in Israel. Um, and here is what's recorded in that book, verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ascalon. Those are two major cities of the Philistines. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, and lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they, did not, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. And old daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, you clothed, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. Verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. And so we see here that David shows respect and, and, and generosity and grieving towards Saul. He, he calls for this weeping for Saul and Jonathan and uh, those who lost their lives in this battle. And in verse 26 that we just read, it shows really how David really cared for Jonathan. Again, that closeness that they had. I do need to say this, that when it says that you have been very pleasant to me, your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women, there are those who try to pervert the, the word of God and they'll say, well, David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. See, and there's evidence of that. It is not what that is saying at all. They had a love for each other that is found in Christ, a, a bond together that is only found with believers that are found in, in, based in God's love. And it's very strong and it's very special. Jonathan and David, yes, their souls were knitted together, but it was in the love of the Lord. And that love that they had for God was then expressed as they had that close bondness and closeness as friends. And they really were ones that we can learn from them in that special bond that they had. Because you see, I believe the Lord desires for you to have relationships like that. For you guys to, to bond together in the love of Christ and have uh, those guys or, or an individual that you really bond with. And, and it's a bond that's only found in Christ. For you sisters to also to develop in those relationships. And it's a very special thing to have. When you have that brother or that sister, that you have that special bond and closeness, and it's only found in Christ, God's agape love that you have expressed for each other. So I encourage you to develop those relationships with brothers and sisters. And, and many of you perhaps are, are new and, and we're seeing new people all the time. There's opportunities for you in, as we gather in, in home fellowships and Wednesday nights here and uh, men's breakfasts and ladies' events for you to come and develop those relationships. And when the fall comes, we'll even have more opportunities for that because it's very special when you have that special bond with a brother or sister, somebody um, in Christ, um, as you have the love of Christ that is there for each other. Chapter 2, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any city of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up, David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoham, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, and David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. So David inquires of the Lord. He knows he's not to stay in Ziglag, in Philistine territory. And he says, Lord, where should I go? He is not going to, to try to force himself onto the throne of the king of Israel. But the Lord says, I want you to go to Hebron there, which is south of Jerusalem. So David takes you know, his family. He takes his 600 men, and that's where they're going to dwell 
for several years. In verse 4, the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So David here, he goes to Hebron. The tribe of Judah anoints him king, and he's going to be there for seven and a half years, as the scripture says. David honors the men of Jabesh-Gilead for what they did in coming and getting Saul and Jonathan that were penned to Bethshan on the walls and would risk their lives and cross the Jordan River and come and take their bodies down and take a Saul and Jonathan to Jabesh-Gilead and give them a proper burial. And David says, blessed are you for doing that. You know, whenever that we do that which is right in the sight of the Lord, the Lord's going to bless you. Even when it seems difficult, even when it's hard, the Lord's going to bless you for doing what is right in his eyes, the right thing to do. And may we always be ones that are seeking to do the right things. Lord, what is it that I am to do in a way that is right in your sight, which honors you? So David here is the king of Judah. In verse 8, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Hishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, and over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, over to Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old and began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So what happens is, is Abner, who was the you know, captain of Saul's army, he makes Saul's son here, Ishbosheth, the king, and he is king over the other 11 tribes. So there's division that is here. And it's a division that's really going to kind of show up later on in their history after the reign of David, after the reign of Solomon, when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is reigning. Then we'll see those ten northern tribes will break off from the house of Judah and the house of Benjamin. So right now there's division, and it's not a good thing because there's going to be war that's going to be going on now. Whenever there is division among God's people, it is not a good thing. We know that Paul, he was addressing the church at Philippi. He was addressing a problem that was going on. There was division that was going on between two individuals. It was beginning to affect the church. And in chapter 1, he says, your conduct needs to be worthy of the gospel. And he says, do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit as you move into Philippians chapter 2. But in loneliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself and look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And then he gives the ultimate example of humility and selfishness in Christ who, who came to this world and was obedient to death, to death on the cross. Jesus Christ came and took on the, the form of a man and became a servant, a bondservant, and obedient to death. He looked out for our own interests. And Paul says, do this, have the mind of Christ and be of one accord and one spirit. And a way for us to continue to be of one mind and one accord and one spirit is that we have lowliness of mind. We don't have any conceit or selfish ambition. That's not to be a part of our lives as Christians. And looking out not only for our own interests, but for the interests of others. So humility and, and, and you know, looking out for the interests of others and, and desiring to come together in one heart and one mind and one spirit is what Paul says. That's a mind of Christ. I have seen, and so have you, some of you, the damage that is done to ministries, to churches, when there is division. And there was damage done to the nation when there is division among God's people. And isn't it interesting, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, it was a corrective letter. There was all these problems that were in plaguing the church of Corinth that they needed to be corrected in. And what's the first thing that Paul addressed them on? And it was division. Because he knew how much harm would come to the church. And it's an effective tool of Satan to try to bring a wedge between brothers and sisters, you know, in Christ and bring division in, in ministries and in churches. 
And we need to guard against that. And we need to be ones that we are loving one another with the love of Christ and that we are looking out for the interests of others and serving one another in love and in humility, one accord and one spirit. May our conduct be worthy of the gospel, just as Paul would say to them, and it's a word for us as well. So here is uh, Hishbosheth made king of Israel, and then they end up warring against each other. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out to Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David, went out to and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So it seems like, you know, this uh, Abner was Saul's commander, Joab is David's commander. And it seems like it's just this competitive, you know, kind of skirmish that they begin to have, but then it's going to break out in an all-out war, in free-for-all, in battle, verse 15. So those men arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust the sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So pretty rough, isn't it? So there was a fierce battle that day, and Abner, the men of Israel, were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abish Ai and Ahashel, and Ahashel was a fleet of a foot of a wild gazelle. And Ahashel pursued Abner, and going, he did not turn to the right hand or from the left following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Ahashel? And the answer, I am. And Abner, in verse 21, said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or your left and lay hold of one of your young men and take his armor for yourself. But Ahashel would not turn aside from following him. In verse 22, Abner said again to Ahashel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? And however, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Ahashel fell and died stood still. So what happens here is as Abner is running, uh, he is men being defeated, he's trying to get away from Joab. ASL, Joab's brother, matter of fact, these guys are related to David. They're the nephews of David. And he has feet, ASL, as a wild gazelle. Now, if you go to Israel and in Gedi and you watch the wild gazelles, they're like wild mountain goats. Man, they're all over those hillsides and they, they go up those hills and those rocky mountains, you know, or terrain just very swiftly, very quickly, very gracefully. That's the way he was. And he's pursuing Abner. And Abner turns to him and says, listen, quit pursuing me. If you're going to pursue me, at least arm yourself. But he didn't do it. So ASL came up and Abner ended up putting a sword in him. It was foolish for ASL to do that. He had confidence in his own abilities and being swift and look at me and I'm going to catch up to you, Abner. And he gets up to him and he doesn't have a sword. You know, we do battle every single day, don't we? Our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, Paul would write. So therefore, put on the whole armor of God. And as we do battle, have the whole armor of God and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Otherwise, you're going to be a casualty. And don't run out in your day and say, oh, I'm going to do battle against the enemy, and I'm not going to put on my helmet of salvation, you know, and my breastplate of righteousness. And I'm not going to have the sword of spirit. I'm not going to have the armor of God because the enemy is going to lop your head off. And he's going to beat you up and he's going to do you in. So make sure that you are wise and taking on the whole armor of God. And so here is, you know, David's nephew, Joab's brother that is killed because of his foolishness. And so verse 24, Joab and Abish Ai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill Amma, which is before Gaia at the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and came a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? 
And Joab said, As God lives unless you have spoken surely then by morning, all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. So a ceasefire is called. Joab, even though he wants to, to avenge the death of his brother, can't reach Abner. So he's going to get his revenge later, as we will see in a few chapters. But verse 29, as we finish tonight, Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bethron, and they came to Mahan, Naam. And so Joab returned from pursuing Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants 19 men and Aishel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. And then they took up Aishel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. You know why David grew stronger and stronger? Because it was the work of the Spirit. And the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That's what should be happening in our lives, folks. That the work of the Spirit should be growing stronger and stronger in our lives and those things of the flesh should be getting weaker and weaker and putting those things away as we're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, as we're growing and maturing in the Lord. How's that happen? By the Word of God, surrendering to the Lord, being a worshiper, and every single day staying close to Him, abiding in Him, Loving the Lord. And you're going to see that your spirit's going to get stronger and stronger. And the flesh is going to get weaker and weaker. Get rid of the Amalekites. Okay? Get rid of the Agives because they will do you in. And walk with the Lord. And let Him do that marvelous work that He wants to do in your life. And Father, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that we can have this Bible study on Wednesday nights where we just come and we're not just reading history, but there's lessons for us tonight. And Lord, I do pray that, Lord, in this room, that we have surrendered our hearts to you. And Father, that if anybody who is here, maybe out in a coffee shop, who has not completely surrendered their hearts to you, that Lord, they would do so that they would know the gospel message is that Jesus came to this world, as, as Paul wrote in Philippians. And as, 